Phil, could you please say a few words about yourself? My name is Phil Wainwright. I'm a co-founder of Diginomica, a tech media website, which really focuses on how organizations, businesses are using technology, particularly modern digital technology, to change the way that they operate. And um, we're very focused on the enterprise applications market and therefore a lot of the, the cloud vendors whose origins we're going to talk about today. I've read your articles where you walk through the history of SaaS, and I believe it all started with ASP. So before I start talking about the early ASPs, I just want to kind of position this a little bit because I've grown up with this whole emerging industry. I became very focused on the early days of SaaS 20 years ago as a technology writer. And looking back on it now, today we can see many of the things that the early SaaS vendors learning to do now is something that many other industries are learning to do. Because one of the things at the heart of the SaaS model is it wasn't just being able to deliver computing from the cloud rather than delivering it from servers in your own data center. It wasn't just about being able to pay as you go rather than pay up front. I don't think anyone realized this at the beginning, but it was also about the provider of the technology being connected to the customer and therefore being concerned about the customer's outcomes, the customer's success from using the product, having to be engaged in that, and also being able to monitor it because there was this continuous connection going on. And therefore, this digital connection is a fundamental part of the SaaS model. And we're now seeing you know, everything being delivered as a service. Everyone is digitally connected. Every business is delivering in this joined-up way and therefore has to care about the customer's experience rather than just selling a product. And so the transition the software industry went through in the early days of SaaS, I think every industry has to go through today. And that's why this story, I think, is really important, not just for people in the software business, but for people in every business. What triggered the rise of SaaS? This all started with the advent of the internet. And very early on when the internet came along, obviously the first thing that people delivered on the internet was information. The second thing that people started thinking about delivering was, well, hang on, can't we deliver functionality as well? Can't we deliver applications? And the, the very earliest move came from a company called Citrix, which in the mid-1990s came up with a technology which made it possible to deliver a Windows application across the internet into a browser so that you didn't have to have Windows on your machine that was accessing the application because the application was running on a server and you were just getting that terminal session, it was called. How successful was it? So in the early days of SaaS, the term SaaS didn't exist. The term that people used was application service provider, and that was analogous to internet service providers. You got connected to the internet because someone delivered internet connection to you. And so the next phase then, when people started thinking about applications, was they thought, oh, right, so we have internet service providers, we'll have application service providers as well, and they deliver applications. So that was the origin. And this, remember, was at the time of the, the dot-com boom, 98, 99. 
And it was phenomenal expectations. I mean, it was a real hype curve around what were then called ASPs. They were as excited about ASPs as they were about pet food delivery services and all the other things. I'm thinking sock puppets in my mind, because there was this famous business called Pets.com, which delivered stuff for pets, which was a horrendous flame out because it lost money hand over fist. And in those days, there was so much faith. I mean, we talk about irrational exuberance was a phrase people used in the 1990s. I mean, people talk about a bubble today, about inflated expectations today. And I think there's a lot of that about. But I mean, I was just looking at some of the articles I got back in my archive. And um, there was one of the leading ASPs in 2000 was a company called Coria, which specialized in delivering applications like PeopleSoft and Oracle to companies using all this technology. So they were filing for an IPO to raise $50 million on 5.8 million revenues, of which three quarters of a million were actually application services, and the other 5 million was professional services. And they had a net loss of 45 million. And their IPO was very successful. I mean, I think that gives you a measure of how much unrealistic expectation there was And there are arguments why you can see a lot of value in a business that is losing money at the moment if it has very high growth expectations. I think in those days, people were a little bit more naive because one of the things that people got confused about with the SaaS model in the early days was that people were looking at established software businesses and they were saying, okay, if I sell this much product, then I get this much revenue in a particular year. Now, the SaaS equivalent is, well, if I sell this much service, then I get this much revenue in the next three years. So my revenue in the first year looks like a third less for the same revenue potential. So because you're not front-loading the revenues anymore, then the model looks weaker than it actually is if you're measuring it against conventional software company. So this annuity model of recurring revenue is one that people now understand better because there are a lot more businesses that have that model. But back in the 1990s, early 2000s, I think it was very misunderstood. And, and therefore, people can make mistakes. You have to look at the underlying financials of the business with an understanding of how SaaS businesses work because it's different from the way that traditional product businesses work. So we started with ASPs in the 90s and somehow ended up with SaaS? The history is quite interesting that the bust of the dot-com boom happened and suddenly ASP became a dirty word, or I suppose a dirty acronym. No one wanted to be described as an ASP. There were some companies, even in 1999, had actually avoided the term. Because back in those early days, we talked about the ASPs like Corio, US Internetworking was another well-known name at the time, that were delivering these enterprise applications using Citrix terminal technology. Um, and they were the traditional sort of service providers of traditional applications. There was another set of vendors that said, no, we're going to build applications that we can deliver natively to the browser. True cloud applications. These were companies like Salesforce and NetSuite. There were a number of other companies around at the time. WebEx was another company that was kind of considered part of the of the ASP movement. And they were all building applications using the multi-tenancy model of a shared server infrastructure to serve applications to a browser. And they tried to call themselves different names. Some of them actually formed a trade association called Internet Business Service Providers, 
because they wanted to be known as IBSPs rather than ASPs, because they didn't want to be associated with this old school model. And that was why I think the SAS term came into being. I mean, I think it's a kind of a clumsy, rather uh, ugly term, but it was better than being associated with the ASPs. How do we even define SAS? That's a very contentious question to answer, and particularly back in the old days. I mean, I think that the question has been answered now. There were two models going on. There was the SaaS model, where companies like Salesforce and so on were built natively on the web, on the cloud, and delivering to the browser. And then there was the, I once called it SoSaaS, the same old software as a service, which was people who already had applications that were built in the old way and wanted to get onto the SaaS bandwagon. So they needed to host those applications and then start calling them SaaS, even though they hadn't actually changed the applications in any way. People used to say that SaaS is just an alternative delivery model. And they were talking about, you know, all we have to do is change the financing so that people can pay for subscription. All we have to do is put it in a data center and make it available on the internet and just fudge it with Citrix or whatever. And that's a SaaS offering. And the problem with that was that you didn't get the economies of scale that you had from all of the shared infrastructure in a proper SaaS model uh, because you were replicating each individual server platform for each of your customers. But also you didn't get any of that connected ethos that I talked about, that engagement with the customer, because you were just still working in the old product model, but build in a slightly different way and hosted in someone else's data center rather than your own data center. But otherwise it was just, well, same old software. So that battle to say that what is true multi-tenancy of having a, a shared application infrastructure and delivering from the cloud was one that took kind of 10, 12 years to fight out. Could you please elaborate on multi-tenancy? So multi-tenancy as a term is a little bit redundant these days. In the beginning, it was such a challenge to be a SaaS vendor because none of the stuff that we take for granted today existed. Internet access was dial-up. There was no mobile broadband. There were none of these frameworks to support application functionality in the browser. There was much poorer global internet infrastructure. There were no cloud platforms like AWS and Google Cloud and, and Azure. There were no platforms as a service like Salesforce App Exchange. You had to build everything yourself. You had to build your own AWS and your own App Exchange and then put your application on top of it. So what multi-tenancy meant was you basically had to, from scratch with your own innovation, Uh, create an infrastructure that meant that all of your customers were running from a single database and a single application server, but were each getting their own individual version of the application where their data was not available to anybody else in the same infrastructure. I mean, one of the arguments against multi-tenancy used to be, we don't want our customers' data commingling with other customers' data, as if having the data in a secure infrastructure, but still sharing the same servers was a bad thing or an unsafe thing. If it's implemented properly, then it's perfectly reasonable. And the benefits of that are huge because you get the economies of scale of not having to operate all these different database servers and application servers. But on top of that, also very powerfully, everyone is running off the same instance. 
So the technical support is hugely easier. The integrations are repeatable. And people can exchange configurations and elaborations between the customer base much more easily. And you can look as a vendor at what all of your customers are doing and see patterns and understand which features are working and which features are not working and tune your application much more easily. So there are all those benefits because everyone is on the same stuff. This is now mainstream. It's now called serverless. And, you know, this is a convenience that we're using the same functionality that everyone else is because it's cheaper, it's on demand, we only pay for what we use. So we've kind of gone for full circle now that what used to be an exception is now actually the norm. What made it the norm? It's the whole innovator's dilemma thing. Initially, you address an underserved market with a product which looks very rudimentary, but As it gets established, it becomes more refined and it ends up being able to deliver a better solution than what existed before. So you need early adopters to start taking it on board and then the people doing it start to learn and gradually it becomes a better product. So it, this was a better model, but it just needed to take time to prove itself. And I think that's always true. I think that in 30 years of watching technology, And being at the leading edge, really, or watching the emerging stuff, establishment always believes that what they're doing is the right way to do it and, and are always dismissive of new things coming along. And if you're doing a new thing, which is actually going to end up being better, then you just have to stick to it because it's going to be really tough for the first 10, 15, 20 years until eventually the whole world comes around to your point of view. So the companies that you call SaaS, do they need to rebuild the whole software in the cloud to be considered a part of the crowd? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't just port your old stuff into the cloud because the architecture is completely different, but the business model is completely different as well. I mean, we were talking about multi-tenancy, and one of the things that I wanted to add was that we had the old debates about multi-tenancy, but they went away to a large extent as the database platform started to evolve. So when Oracle brought out Oracle 12 with what it called multi-tenant support, you basically had the ability, I call it multi-instance, the support for being able to spawn large numbers of instances of Oracle and, and containers really take this even further. Containerization means that you don't really need multi-tenancy anymore to achieve the shared infrastructure and the pooled infrastructure advantages of the SaaS model because the technology has evolved so that you can just run up the resources that you need and take them down again. It's the key to the SaaS model to me is that it's a black box. It's a service and the customer does not have a say in how that service is created. They just get to accept the contract or not. And now it doesn't really matter whether what's behind that black box is multi-tenant or multi-instance or how it's engineered. The technology allows you to pick and choose the best way to make that architecture today. So Oracle did that to its platform and moved more into a SaaS model for its applications and now has got a SaaS model for its database with the introduction of the autonomous database, which is only available as a service. You can't install the autonomous 
Oracle database on your own data center. I mean, there is a sort of a fix that in theory allows you to do that. But the, the basic principle is that it's autonomous because Oracle runs it for you. So Oracle now has caught up with the SaaS model. But I listened to a talk in which one of their executives talked about how becoming a service company means that Oracle has to completely reframe how it relates to its customers, that Oracle has to become known as a company which is concerned about the outcomes that its customers receive, has got to be concerned about customer service. And I thought that was quite interesting because, you know, Oracle is not necessarily known as the most kind of friendly, accommodating technology company in the world. But there was this executive saying that we have to change now because we're delivering a service rather than a product. And I think that encapsulates it, that it's not just the technology and the billing and all of these other ways of interacting with your customers. It's actually the fact that you have to be committed to the customer being successful as a result of using your product. And you have to be engaged in that and concerned about that. It's a kind of culture mindset as well as a different technology and a different billing relationship. What was the first mainstream sales company? I don't think you can put this down to a particular individual company. I would say that the one company that did more than anybody else is Salesforce. And Salesforce was a standard bearer and everyone in the industry at that time was really thankful for Salesforce and Mark Benioff going out there and making a stand and saying, this is the right model. This is the future of computing. It was quite amusing, I thought, that the slogan was no software because actually there's a huge amount of software goes into building Salesforce, but it was you know no software for the customer because the provider takes care of that. That was that key message. And um, Salesforce was a huge evangelist. Um, so they were a standard bearer and they had a huge amount of influence, but it wasn't just Salesforce. There were a lot of other pioneers that were doing stuff as well. There were a lot of people who believed in the model. And on top of that, people talked about SaaS as a kind of an enterprise applications thing. But actually, I was sitting there looking at what Google were doing with delivering internet advertising as a service to their customers. No one thought about that as an enterprise application, but Google turned it into a multi-billion dollar business. And it's certainly an important enterprise application these days. A lot of the work that Google did, that Yahoo did, the development of DevOps and continuous delivery, all of those things associated with the cloud infrastructure model came out of these huge concerns that were delivering stuff across the internet was not the classic enterprise application, but still required enterprise-scale computing of one kind or another. And they also defined a lot of the stuff that was necessary to make all of this model work. So it was a combination of cheerleaders plus people doing stuff so that the technology matured and was able to support what was needed to be done. When did infrastructure as a service started to gain traction? So the infrastructure as a service movement started out with Amazon Web Services. 
Well, they were the first, but with one caveat. There were a lot of other people doing stuff beforehand to try to kind of systematize and productize the infrastructure of delivering stuff at scale in the internet. But what AWS did, and obviously, you know, they started off just delivering storage. S3 was the first thing that they delivered, and they delivered something called queue services. You would probably say now that was the first serverless function, although that actually then later got discontinued. And then they came out with the Elastic Compute Service, so and that was the, the first infrastructure as a service, service properly. But I mean, that all came out of stuff that they'd done internally because they realized Amazon nearly broke. If the dot-com boom hadn't turned into a collapse, then Amazon would have fallen over because they couldn't scale. And they knew that they had to rewrite their underlying infrastructure. And so they rewrote it as effectively what you would call today microservices. And that led to AWS. And because they had created these kind of component services, and then they thought, okay, well, why not we try taking them to market? So they took S3 to market. And that took off. So then they came out with the Elastic Compute Service, and that started to take off. Um, And meanwhile, Microsoft just happened to have tried to run a search engine. So with Bing, they had some experience of how to do computing at scale and and they just happened to kind of fall into delivering office across the web as as a multi-tenant service so they started almost by accident have the technology and expertise in-house to to end up doing azure and then of course google had this incredible infrastructure and eventually decided well in fact i think it was a little bit of an accident gmail they didn't realize was going to be as successful as it was and when it turned out that it was successful, they thought, okay, well, maybe we can get into other aspects of enterprise computing. But um, but it took them a long time, and still, they're only just really now getting around to to understanding what they really need to do to deliver to the enterprise. Therefore, you have these three hyperscale players, and you have Alibaba in China, which is probably the fourth one, and I don't know if we'll ever have any others turning up. But, um, but they provide the basic platform. So if you scroll forward to today... SaaS is mainstream. And interestingly, I think we're getting to a new phase of SaaS now. So I want to talk about that, but let's just quickly review the milestones that we've gone through. Because you've had the the original application service providers that thought it was a good idea, but couldn't quite figure out how to do it. And the cloud native versions of that, like Salesforce and so on, started to work out how to do that. Then you had the infrastructure as a service provider starting to appear. And at the same time, in the mid-2000s, you had the platform as a service providers, App Exchange from Salesforce being the, the one that we all remember because it survived. But there were a lot of other players at the time who tried to do various things. And then you had the delivery of the iPhone and this tremendous platform, really smart device with huge amounts of capability that brought us to a new phase of mobile computing. And then while all of this was going on, the internet was maturing, the infrastructure was maturing, so connectivity, pervasive broadband started to happen. All kinds of stuff was happening in terms of interfaces in how services connect up to each other. So, you know, when that ASPs first started, we didn't have web services, we didn't have REST interfaces, we didn't have these API-centric ways of connecting things that we have today. So all of this stuff is gradually put into place 
to fulfill all of the requirements that some people identified. There was a company called Jamcracker that back in 1999, it was an ASP platform. It defined a whole set of standards that would be required to be able to enable a proper SaaS infrastructure. And it's taken like 15 years for all of this to come into into being. So what we have now is we've got all of this technology, all of this infrastructure in place. And people are starting to move to more serverless way of delivering functionality. I think we're now seeing a new wave of SaaS vendors who are building on these much more dispersed platforms that are available today. So I think of it as serverless computing describes the back end and headless computing describes the front end because you can now access applications through a messaging client like Slack and surface a lot of the workflow in Slack and the processing goes off and happens in the back end, but you never actually have to go into that back end application to uh, book your holiday, for example, or place your order, whatever it is. So now we've also got SaaS vendors starting to build their applications on AWS, for example, because they see their customers building applications on AWS. You could make the same argument for Azure and for Google Cloud. And it's much easier if everyone's on the same infrastructure to hook all of these different services together and then present it in this conversational interface layer. And, and everything is becoming much more atomized. And you are literally now able to, on demand, assemble the application that you need from a whole load of different services. I actually remember saying that was the future back in 1999, and it's probably taken us 20 years to get there. But um, this is the thing. People talked about application service providers. You know, my take was, yes, providers of application services. And everyone else said, ah, service providers of applications. I think it's taken a very long time for that original vision to come true. But I think it was always there. I think there was always this kind of feeling that, that could be possible. Do you think all software companies will eventually implement SaaS model? If you ask me, is all software going to be SaaS? I think that you have to caveat that. So I think in the end, it's going to be a mixed economy because, I mean, Salesforce does own its own servers. It runs its software. So as long as you're providing something distinctive to the market as a service, then you're going to be a SaaS vendor, but you're going to be running your own stuff. But there's going to be layers because Salesforce is now moving to using Amazon infrastructure. So everybody is going to be consuming some stuff that other people have built for them, but they're going to be doing a bit of stuff that they've created. So just because the software that you've developed is running on someone else's infrastructure that is taking someone else's underlying platform and you're actually delivering it in some messaging layer that someone else is providing doesn't make it any less yours. And actually, you know, this is better. We live in a networked economy and the businesses that will thrive and prosper are the ones that are the best at taking advantage of the network. So why should it be a bad thing that you're actually taking from the network the stuff that people do best to put that together with the stuff that you're good at to then deliver the best products? I don't see what's wrong with that. The only people who want to build everything themselves are 
engineers who don't trust anybody else. And in a network society, you've got to trust people. What are some pros and cons of SaaS for customers and vendors themselves? So a lot of people say that SaaS is a model that is for the convenience of the vendor and doesn't benefit the customer at all. I think that's a completely wrong way of looking at the issue. People who say that are really focused on the internal mechanics of a software vendor. And the reason that they can say that is that, yeah, SaaS is much better for a software vendor because you've only got one instance. You're not having to support lots of customers doing all kinds of things that you didn't expect them to do with your software because they're approaching it from a different point of view. You've got one instance that you're responsible for. Uh, you can deliver a service with very clear guarantees about what you're able to do, what you're not able to do. And you've also got this continuous connection with the customer, which allows you to refine and improve that service and and how it benefits your customers over time. So that, I think, means that you have the ability to be very successful as a software vendor. And uh, this networked economy also means that you can constantly refine your ability to do that job better and better by keeping an eye out and using better resources as they come along. And it does mean you have to stay on your toes that if you don't keep innovating and keep looking out for what's going on in the market, then you will get overtaken and left behind. And that Maybe that's why some people don't like it. From a customer point of view, two benefits. One is the vendor is concerned about your outcomes because they depend on you continuing to give you your recurring subscription to stay with them. And they know that you're looking around because there is a market out there and you always have the option of going somewhere else. Having said that, there is lock-in in the SaaS model because once you've built your business on a set of services, then it's quite difficult to make that change. You're only going to swap out one key piece of automation technology for another if there's a very clear benefit to you of actually doing that. Someone once said to me that, um, do you know what the average customer lifetime of a customer of ADP is? Uh, ADP, the payroll provider, which I think you could argue is the very, very first or SaaS provider. Although interestingly, that their first delivery method was not the internet, it was actually a bus. They provided payroll services by the founders getting on a bus, going to the company, picking up the payroll cards and taking them away to run them through their mainframe. This is a, a model for the kind of core applications, particularly for something like Salesforce or an ERP system. People will typically, once they've settled on a system, you've got them for average lifetime of 12 years. Probably more than that if you play your cards right. Where do you think SaaS goes from here? I think SaaS is not only here to stay. I think it is extending into other industries. But as Mark Andreessen famously said, every company today is a software company. I would add every company today is a connected software company. The more and more automation that you put into your business and the more and more you become committed to customer experience and customer outcomes and joined up support of what your customers are trying to do with your products and those products are increasingly connected or you're increasingly focused on an experience and keeping your customers engaged over time. All businesses, whether they're retailers or manufacturers or media companies, look more and more like software companies, and more and more like SaaS companies. And so I think the SaaS model, or I call it XSAS, which stands for everything as a service, 
becomes the, this excess model that every company has to conform to because they've got to deliver this joined up service because the technology means pervasive connectivity. You are constantly connected to your customers. And if you don't nurture that relationship and concern yourself with the success your customers have with your product, then other people will take that business away because they will do that better. They will look after customers better than you are doing. Is there anything we missed that you would want to share with the listeners? When I was looking through the, the history of this before I came over today, there was this wonderful company called BizTone in 1999, which decided that it was going to build a cloud-native ERP application from scratch to replace SAP and Oracle in Java and actually wasn't able to because the funding ran out because of the dot-com crash. But actually, they were probably overreaching themselves as well. But um, Daryl Carlton was the CEO, and I, I found his stuff quite inspiring. He was just talking about how all the mainframe financials vendors had kind of disappeared, and the same thing was going to happen to the SAPs and the Oracles. And okay, BizTone didn't work out, but I think that what he said is starting to come true. We're starting to see the old generation of vendors being replaced by a new generation. And that's what the SaaS model has enabled. Phil, thank you very much for a fantastic interview.